Hey family, welcome to the Kinship Collective Podcast. I'm Mark and we are sharing, celebrating, and lamenting one another's stories and reimagining scripture together in ways that build empathy, create solidarity, and ultimately realize that we are family. Y'all, we're hanging in person this Thursday, November 17th in Pasadena. We are like beyond capacity, which is amazing. So if you've registered, come on through. And if you haven't, we look forward to seeing you at our next one, beginning of next year, first quarter. We can't wait. So if you registered, there's magic missing in the room without you. And if you didn't register, the next time we want your magic there. Well, this week we have an exploratory conversation with Savannah Ray Carreno, an incredible sister who researches the impacts of American religion and founded Please Elaborate. We talk with her about her hospitable upbringing and her decision to no longer identify as Christian. Then we think about Paul and his choice to name the unnamed God in Acts 17, 22 through 34. Without further ado, here's Savannah. Ladies and gentlemen, today, I'm so <laughs> grateful we get to hang with a person who holds space so well, someone who's done so much work, the ability to hold the complexity in her own story, the hard work and discipline of understanding the complexity of our nation, or if you're listening from another country, of the United States history so that she can kind of articulate some of these spaces, the complexity of the space that has created maybe some of the dissonance or harm or polarity and the ways that we find, look at someone as other or as an enemy. She has done so much work to understand that. She stands in the gap and she is bringing together people. It's a long introduction before even saying <laughs> her name. She will remain nameless to this point. She's the <laughs> no. founder of Please Elaborate. She has a BA in International Humanitarian Affairs and a Master's of Divinity where she studied religion and culture. She currently researches Western religion's influence on culture and human rights. She's dedicated to teaching others how to have effective dialogue and how to better understand the stories that contradict their own. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I introduce to you Senora or Senorita, depending on the age, <laughs> Miss Mrs. Savannah Carreño. Wow, that was the best introduction I've literally ever had. <laughs> These people are going nuts as they should be. People are going nuts. Oh, that is so great. Wow. Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. Stop, everybody. Stop. Stop. Oh, my God. So much. Guys, Please. Guys, everyone guys, sit down. Gals, you can sit guys. down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Savannah, I, I'm like, I'm smiling so big. Those of you who are listening, I, I'm so we had a, a lovely conversation before we hit the record button. Savannah is such a warm human being. So I was trying to articulate like, the ways that she has done work to be able to hold complexity. I see her and I know her to be someone who can hold that. She's really passionate about helping 
young people, young adults learn how to hold varying perspectives? How do we grow away from the home we grew up in, the mindset we grew up in? I would say like the voting traditions, the worldview, the theology that we came from, how do we mature from that to a space where we can dialogue and hold hospitality or hold space for a varying opinion? So she kind of represents that humility. Savannah, I'm so grateful for today. Welcome. So happy to be here. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. Savannah, so my introduction was like lots of things about who you are. <laughs> Is there anything about who you are or where you've been or where you are now that you would want people to know before we kind of get into more conversation? Oh, I love that intro. I love, that's a great question. Um <clears throat> I think the, the only thing that I really always emphasize anytime that I talk with anyone is my goal is always to have conversations and learn. And my perspective and how I view the world is going to be very different from how someone else views it and uh, experiences the world. And that's natural and that's okay. And uh, if we have different beliefs politically, religiously, uh, socially, whatever, <laughs> you know, philosophically, that is a product of living as a human being in the world. And so I would want to say up front that whatever we get to delve into today, whatever joyful things that we talk about, whatever crunchy topics that we approach, <laughs> that because they will most likely be crunchy topics, it, <laughs> as we approach those, what I share is my experience and it is in no way me declaring my perspective as the end-all be-all singular perspective or experience. It's not the right way. It's just what Savannah has experienced and come to believe. And uh, I'm at a space in my life where I have had to hold varying perspectives and accept them all as true and know that I'm doing that through this dialogue. And whoever's listening to this, if I say something that doesn't match your experience, know that I am in no way diluting or devaluing the authority and the validity of your experience, um, that I can hold all of our experiences together. And I hope that we can all do that. Savannah, that is such a mature response, I think, to come out of the gate trying to locate yourself and also hold space for someone else's yeah. perspectives. I love that because it acknowledges that not only does it acknowledge that we all have various perspectives, but I think it points to the fact that our perspectives serve us in some capacity. There's a reason why some people hold different beliefs at an arm's length those beliefs may have been a source of pain right. or harm. There's a reason why other people are really open-armed and open-handed towards new beliefs. And, yeah. and that would point to the ways that that served them in the past. And for me, when you say that, it makes me think of not just how you hold that and, and the hospitality with which you introduce yourself, and, but it makes me think of like, why is Savannah that way? So one of my first, like what comes to mind is, what experiences for you have really formed you to be that kind of person who would really say, hey, I understand that my perspective, like this is my perspective, so I'm not trying to declare what is the perspective. Yeah. What kind of experiences really form that for you? Yeah, well, starting out as a kid, it probably goes back to good parenting. Um, I had the best parents uh, growing mm. up as a young kid. Uh, my parents did not agree on everything. Um, politically, socially, philosophically, they looked at the world very differently, and it wasn't seen as a bad thing. 
and our house, I didn't grow up in a, in a quote unquote religious house. I did grow up in the deep South. <laughs> so similar to how sometimes, you know, I'm sure if anyone's Jewish here, they might re- resonate with this, how you might say you're Jewish by uh, tradition, but not religion. You know, how someone says, you know, mm-hmm. I'm Jewish mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, by culture. That's kind of how I say I, I was Christian by culture in the South, right? We weren't in church every Sunday. We weren't integrated into a Christian community. Um, but we celebrated Christmas. My family was the CEOs. We went to church Christmas and Easter only. Um, so it was there, but I didn't grow up in a in a religious household. And so uh, my parents always encouraged curiosity and questions around anything and everything. I mean, even as a young kid, they would, if we asked what it meant to be gay, we would have that conversation. And it was never through the lens of being gay is wrong. It's, well, it means someone loves someone else that looks Mm. like them or, you know, has the same anatomy as them and explaining it from a really tactile perspective. Mm. (laughs) That got really political really quickly. But so that's just the upbringing that I had where questions and curiosity. I remember one Christmas I asked my parents, I was like, you know, who's Jesus? Why, why was he, why are we celebrating his birthday? And my mom explaining the story of Jesus and explaining that not in a way to say, Savannah, you need to believe this right now, or you're going to hell. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that it was a gentle teaching of this is what people celebrate and why. And so questions were always um, received with a respect and a dignified curiosity. Say, it's okay, Savannah, to ask those questions. Or my other sisters, you know, we would ask the craziest things. And when my what my parents could have done is shut us down or tell us to believe a certain way. But because my parents came from different backgrounds, they couldn't do that, right? You can't force us one way or the other. They told us their perspectives. And then as kids, we got to look at and kind of decide what we wanted to take for our own and go, kind of go out and do our own research. And so that's a part of it. I think that is just who I am because I had really good parents as a young kid that welcomed curiosity instead of shutting it down. Um, our questions were never put on a shelf for later. They were handled right then and there with real discussions. Mm. The other the other impact, I guess, is... <clears throat> When I uh, in grad or, or undergrad, I went to uh, New York City for undergrad, and I was coming from Nashville, Tennessee, which is a really homogenous environment. Uh, mm. You know, people look the same, dress the same, act the same, believe the same, vote the same. It's very, very homogenous. And then I go to New York City, <laughs> which is the opposite. <laughs> and you know, all the, my friends that I'm making, my roommates, my my the people that I'm becoming close to, that I'm dating, right? They're they're different. They they look differently than me. They vote differently than me. They practice different religions than me. They identify uh, their sexuality is different than mine. And so I'm suddenly integrated into this community of people that I love deeply and still connect with and still am friends with that were so different than me on, you know, every every lens, every possibility, every factor. We were different and yet we loved each other. And so there's that aspect where, you know, as, as I'm 17 or 18, I'm suddenly integrated into an extremely diverse community that I hadn't grown up in. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, being in ministry for a long time, you know, seven or eight years in ministry as a woman, mm. you're experiencing um, something that is uncomfortable 
based on something that's out of your control. Watching my my male coworkers be promoted at a faster rate, watching my male coworkers earn more money or or get to the pulpit more quickly or get the the title of pastor before me even if I've been there longer, right? So it's mm, it's all mm, of mm. these unfair things where you're like, "Ooh, that hurts. That's not right." And so I think that also really propelled me into this space of something's not right. How can I make space to explore why this is uncomfortable? This isn't making sense. Or, you know what? One of my best friends is gay, and yet this theology is saying that they're they're in trouble. They're going to hell. Okay, how do I... Those things are uncomfortable. How can I reconcile that? And so, you know, from my upbringing to my undergrad experience to being a woman in ministry, um, among a myriad of other things, those are probably the three biggest factors that contribute to my love for curiosity and holding contradicting perspectives and trying to reconcile injustice, I'd say those are probably the the biggest factors that contribute to that. Mm. Thank you for being so generous, Savannah, with that answer. For me, what it made me think of is many things, but one of the first things is that the advantage of coming from a home like that. So let's, many people, we might wake up to like an inkling of that kind of curiosity or I can... uh, um, permission to ask the question some of us don't get that permission until we're in adolescence or until we leave the home at whatever age that ends up being i love it just makes me think of like the leadership um the life habit kind of research out there around the small amount and from a young like from the time you had your first question you were greeted with hospitality and curiosity and let's talk about it i love what you said the tactile response yeah put it put give you kind of the information and then let you kind of disseminate it decipher make a decision which i feel like is what we see you doing nowadays where you're getting the information deciphering it thinking through and and kind of like just putting it out there pretty um not as i was gonna say I can't think of objectively. I keep thinking all these like I'm like nonpartisan, but but what is the <laughs> no, nothing to do with anything like that? Just the object. This is right. the information. This is where yeah. it came from. This is like, and this is where I land on it. And yeah. you might land somewhere else. But I think for me, looking back and being like, you've had so many. You've had a lifetime of practice where many yes. people have had ten years of practice. What a to me, I'm like, I'm, I'm warmed. It's a, I guess I'm in awe. I'm thinking of like the responsibility of being a parent and like, oh man, like what a difference it makes to hold space when, when children are small so that they don't feel like boxed in. Yes, exactly. And I love that you said like, even in Nashville, Tennessee, I was gonna. Be, I was gonna say Nashville, Tennessee, which is definitely more like, accurate. Who knows? I, I'm like I don't know, which is why I tried not to say it, but then still did. Uh, <laughs> even there, there's hospitality, and your parents welcomes you to like be fully right. you. I yes. love that. Then you mentioned faith in there, and you mentioned that your mom, like you guys, were kind of nominal, or uh, yeah, I guess I would say nominal. Christians because you're from the South, but your mom kind of, would you share a little bit about how they held faith? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think my mom who passed a couple of years ago, so I'm going to be speaking in the past tense with her. So if you guys are like, why is she talking in the past tense? It's like, she has passed. Um, 
Yeah, which was a journey all, and that's another story for another day. But so, um, yeah, my mom and dad, I think, viewed and approached and held religion a, a little differently. Both of them were from the South. And so there is that cultural um, inundation of, fa- of faith, right? It's just part of the culture there. I mean, you know, your cashier is going to have like a Bible verse on the cash register, right? It's just part of, you can't get away from it even if you wanted to. And so, my my mom grew up uh, Methodist, and then um, as an adult, I think she carries carried and then continued to carry it after we had grown up and, and left the house. She carried a faith that I think for her was more quietly held while still making space for her daughters to explore religion. Um, mm. She never forced it, but would always share it and bring us into it if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a phase in my life where I would get up and go to this little Methodist church, uh, mm. Bellevue United Methodist Church, if you're listening, shout out, um, BUMC. I would go on my own um, when I got my driver's license because I was curious, and I would just drive by myself on a Sunday and go to that 9 a.m. service and sit in the back and... Um, really here, I would pull out that Bible, you know, the smell of those pew Bibles. It's so good. It's just like so homey and like sweet to me. So I would open those, those Bibles and I would read along and I would digest what was being said. And I think for like a couple of years, I read the Bible maybe two or three times cover to cover, just really trying to figure out what this whole Christianity thing was about. Mm -hmm. And then my dad uh, didn't grow up religious, and I wouldn't say was religious through our childhood, but always, again, made space for it if we had questions. Um, And for a while there, he and I were kind of on this journey of curiosity and discovering together, where he would Mm -hmm. go with me and be like, okay, what's this thing that, like, mom keeps talking about? Like, let's just, like, you know, and let's cure it. And it was beautiful. I mean, when my mom got really, really sick, uh, my dad and I really kind of leaned into faith and said, you know what, you know, mom had this faith. Let's look into this. Like, what do we see in this? And we shed a lot of tears and we we really tried to grapple with it. And in the end, we both walked away with a respect for Christianity while also recognizing that other religions can also bring that kind of peace and really a mutual love and respect for the Christian uh, theology and doctrine and the community while maybe not personally identifying with it, uh, but still holding a, a beautiful respect for it and admiration for it. And so that was kind of the journey growing up with with faith, was you had one parent who was pretty religious growing up as a kid and didn't really pressure it on her children, but invited them in when they wanted to. And then my dad, who wasn't really religious, but would kind of join in on the curiosity with me and some of my sisters and be like, yeah, let's look let's look up this Bible where it's like, what is it? Why is it called the Lamb of God? You know, and, and explore that and find the beauty in it and really have an emotional experience with it. And then say, you know what? This is gorgeous. This is a beautiful text. This is beautiful lessons. Uh, Jesus was a beautiful figure. Um, but, but identifying as someone who respects all religions instead of singularly or exclusively identifying as Christianity was where my dad and I think, I think I'm speaking for him, but I think that's where he would land as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and my mom, completely respected that. And I think in her last few years, she and I had a lot of talk uh, talks about uh, religion and the beauty of it and what it offers us. And so, again, it kind of goes back to that upbringing. My family was really good at holding space for the complexity of the human experience and realizing that 
we're never going to know every little thing. And for certain, we're never going to know what happens when we die. And I feel like that's always what religion's trying to do is like, Mm -hmm. we're always like, where do we go when we die? Mm -hmm. We're never going to know and being okay with that. And um, so, yeah, I I hope that answers the question, but, but that's, that's what I would say. It, it absolutely does. And uh, I, I'm like, I sense my body. It's taking in that journey with your mother and that journey with your father. And, for me, there's a couple thoughts that come up for me. And one is a close friend of mine. Uh, his name is Dr. Jonathan Calvillo. And uh, he, he did his PhD in the sociology of religion. Uh, he's Mexican. And he married my partner and I. And they have been beautiful friends and beautiful examples of like the journey for us. But... For me, I'm just thinking of how you two, you remind me a lot of him in your curiosity, in your discipline and diligence to do the work and to explore. And we're, but I guess I'm trying to think about how it almost seems like, and this could be wrong, but it's like, I think that there's like an exploring where you're like, let's set sail and you pull up the anchor and we're going to go wherever it takes us. And then I think like what I, and this again, Senor Jonathan, mi amigo, I might be misinterpreting, okay? But there's a, it's almost like there's a different kind of exploring where I say, this is the lane where I'll explore and I'll go this far, but but the anchors are, but there's some, I don't know how to say this, it's not fully free exploration. Mm, mm-hmm. There's like boundaries to how far I can explore. There's Sure. And I don't think it's a bad thing because the word that keeps coming to my mind is like anchored or rooted, but I don't, so it's not a bad thing. But for me, I don't know that that's also like complete exploration. And yeah, I I think, and I think this was one of the other questions that that you had wanted to ask me was, you know, I don't identify as a Christian anymore. And you were like, okay, well, why not? Like what brought you there? And this kind of ties into that where I'm a curious person at heart and even as when I was a Christian and when I was in ministry, I would want to explore and ask these questions. And I think I'm in like a little box right now, so I'm going to use it. Like I wanted <laughs> to on. explore, but there were certain boundaries, right? When I started asking questions about hell and does hell really exist? And can I look at the past history of hell in literature? And are we making some of this up? Like, and that was a boundary that I couldn't cross. Or was Jesus... You know, what, what was sin something that we've seen before in other histories? And is the concept of sin something that we invented to create some sort of morality? Ah, that's a boundary you can't cross. And so there were there were all these boundaries. And I, you know, I wanted to explore what is the concept of salvation and is that a concept that we need as humanity in order to have some semblance of certainty? You know, what is salvation? What does that mean? And ah, you can't explore that. You can't do that. And so there were these boundaries that I was given, but then all of these topics that I wanted to keep exploring. And so I think, you know, a lot of times people hear that I don't identify as a Christian anymore and they think, oh, she must have just had a really bad experience with Christianity. You know, I've had some people be like, please come back to our church. Like, we'll be really nice. I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with how humans treated me. I mean, yeah, sure, Christianity is, you know, we've heard stories and and it it was hurtful. I had a really harmful experience um, at a church that I worked at and it was really hurtful and harmful, and I'm still recovering from it. But mm. that's not why I left Christianity. I left Christianity 
not because I don't respect it, not because I didn't feel totally loved, but because there were questions that I had that I couldn't not explore. And I wanted to push outside those boundaries and be okay if I didn't come back. Um, you know, I wanted to be okay with, I'm going to explore this concept of salvation, or I'm going to explore this concept of hell, and I'm gonna, I want to be okay if I come to the belief that there isn't a heaven or hell. I don't want that to be something I have to worry about. In other words, I wanted to explore as far as I wanted without the pressure to come back to a singular belief. I wanted to explore, and I think that's the only way that I could have an accurate um, approach to world history. It's hard to explore world history and religious history if you have the pressure to come back to a singular belief. And so you can explore this, but make sure at the end of the day that you still believe this. Mm. And that for me what didn't didn't work. And for me I you know I don't believe in heaven or hell. Um and so that's a huge pillar of the Christian faith. And so and I believe that all religions are kind of humanity's effort to understand what happens in this world and beyond. And again, that goes against a, a key doctrine of the Christian faith. And so I don't identify as a Christian primarily out of respect for other Christians. If I say that I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in heaven or hell, and I believe that all religions lead to the same place, well, that's insulting to a Christian who has very specific doctrines, right? Um, so I want to respect and honor the beliefs of Christianity without taking them on myself. Um, there's this beautiful phrase, and I forgot where I heard it, but it's, if you're wanting to get get to water underground, you don't dig six one-foot holes. You dig one six-foot hole, right, to get to the water. And that's how I view religion, where someone can dig a six-foot hole to water and someone else can go dig another six-foot hole over here. You're all getting to the same water, but just through a different, different tunnel. And that's how I view it. And that might not be how you view it or someone else views it, but that I couldn't align with Christianity and hold that, that view. And so I took that identity off for myself um, so that it better represented who I was. I hope that's a clear answer to that. <laughs> Savannah, it's great. I, You know, for me, I, what I started to do, like I pulled up my phone, I'm like, is heaven or hell like a really essential tenet of faith? <laughs> Um, Are you like Googling it? <laughs> I, I am because, and not because I'm trying to defend anything because I think I fall more in your camp. I mm. really do. If if God is as big as we say she is, as Love we say that. they are, um, I just don't understand. Like there has to be humans from from the the entirety of like human history have right. been encountering God. And we have this book that was, and that that, and the reason again, and I love your maturity and the ways that you hold it. Like the respect comes through. About I understand what that means for you, and for me, the way that I understand is like my mother embodied the way of Jesus, so she mm. showed me what compassion to our neighbors and sacrificial love and endurance and faithfulness and faith and love and hope. She showed me what it looked like. And I'm like, this is the story back to like the curiosity that your parents kind of like yep. raised you in. This is the story that I was like raised in. And I haven't done the exploration totally. Like I'm like surface exploring on other things because I think I'm still 
engaging the water from like my tradition. Yeah. But I would never negate someone else's ability to encounter living water from their tradition. Right, right. Uh, it's a so, familiarity that I think, uh, I always use the metaphor of, of the cars we go grow up driving. Mm-hmm. I grew up driving a Volvo, a Volvo XC90. It's the best car I ever had. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it. Oh my gosh, I loved this car, this Volvo XC90. I got it when I was 16 or 17 from our neighbors. We bought it from them at a discount. And I mm-hmm. loved it. It was my favorite car. And I became really familiar with Volvos. I think I got a couple of Volvos after that. You know, for my next cars, I had this love for this car. I knew how it worked. I knew the what it would cost to get things repaired. I had my auto shop that I went to. Uh, I knew how much gas was. You know, I just knew how that car worked. And so I went for it. And I would take that car to get to my destination. Someone else might have grown up driving, you know, a Honda CRV. And so they love Hondas. And then they know how Hondas work. They have their auto body shop. They know how much the gas is. And they take that Honda to their destination. Your love for that story of Jesus in the Bible is your vehicle to your destination because it's familiar. It's what you grew up with. It's close to you. You probably can, you probably have a million memories of going to church or even just the smell of your church lobby or knowing people that you hugged and like your mom telling you stories and praying with you and the cadence of your mom's voice during a prayer. Like you probably have all of these familiar memories that make Christianity and the story of Jesus such a familiar comforting, loving vehicle to get to your destination. And so, you know, I, I just want to encourage you in that space. If you if you feel like, oh, well, I have to go explore these other cars, the fact that you acknowledge that other cars exist, other religions exist and are valid, that's the important part. You know, sometimes we put pressure on ourselves. I'm like, I need to go learn how the Hyundai, Hyundai works. I need to go <laughs> learn how the, I don't know, cars, the Jeep works. You know, yeah. I need to go figure out everything about it. Well, I think the important thing is acknowledging that other people use different vehicles to get to that destination mm. and knowing that and sitting with that, even if it makes you uncomfortable, but be, but knowing what's comfortable for you. I know a lot of Christian mm. friends of mine that the, the story of Jesus, prayer, Christian meditation, the idea of Sabbath, there are these beautiful spiritual practices in the Christian faith that bring a lot of comfort to people and help them get to that destination of self-discovery. And that's beautiful. And that's always how, if I, you know, that that is how I think that's a healthy view of Christianity is mm. it's your vehicle. It's what's comfortable and familiar while also not not under the impression that it's the only vehicle to the destination. And it sounds like that's how you view it. And to me, I think that's one of the most healthy approaches to religion in general. Hmm. I, <laughs> there, there are a couple of things on my mind. I really appreciate you. To be honest, like, there are parts of me. It's funny because the literature, a lot of the literature that I have access, real easy access to, it's one of the books on the shelf behind me that I probably it's it probably shouldn't be there it is still there but it's like <laughs> it's kind of like hey this is like this is the real vehicle here's some other vehicles but like this is a real vehicle and i, I say that because there there honestly i did feel i'm kind of in this wonky space where i do know this car and i know that i have encountered the divine creator through in this journey and i'm like even more recently rekindling like yeah, this isn't just intellectual. Like this is, 
but there is a there's an intuition that comes from encountering God, and then you have language, and your even intuition and imagination is framed by that yeah. those experiences, and all of us hold them. So all of us. So when you're in the right, it's almost like the right alchemy calculus of like the kind of person who's had similar experiences, and yep. and that's why different kind of faith communities flourish however they do many times and yeah but for me recently i've just been like yo i need to like i need to like read more but i so i actually truly and honestly did feel a sense of permission where you're like hey your car is working for you like don't worry you don't need to go learn all the cars right now just you know get in your car keep driving buddy (laughs) like i that really did mean something to me and oh i'm so glad it was healing and welcoming so i appreciate that there's there's a couple questions I have for you. Choose your own adventure. Psych, I'm going to try and I love it when for you do you. this voice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one is about and I feel like it's more important, which is like how how does life how does it feel to you when you made that decision? It's almost I guess I'm starting to answer it for you, which I shouldn't be. So just formulate the question, sir. So, question <laughs> You made this decision to say, hey, hey, I don't want to like misname myself. I don't want to co-opt what you're calling Christianity because I know that I'm not that. How does that function for you? Like I see you flourishing more now than you were before in the box. Can you describe what it feels like and how faith or spirituality functions for you now? Yeah. It feels like I can be my full self now because, you know, as we said, my childhood and my whole upbringing has been about celebrating curiosity. Whereas when I was in certain religious settings, that curiosity had to be diminished. Yeah. Um, and so being able to be curious and be uncomfortable and and I love saying my favorite answer to a question is I don't know. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. I don't. And I, you know, I can't emphasize this enough for anyone that follows me on social media, you know, follows my videos. Thank you so much for tuning in. But just know that I, I know so very little. I know so few things. And the more, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like, it's almost like when you're, yeah. when you're in Christianity, you probably know this as well. It's like when you're discovering and you're reading and you're learning new things, the more you learn, the more you realize, the less you know. You're like, oh my God, the, the more things I learn, the less I know. Yeah. Oh, I le- learned this fact? Okay, well, now I have no idea about this other thing. And so that's my life. <laughs> it's yeah. like every day I am researching, I'm talking to mentors and professionals, you know, putting together content. And the thing that I love doing is uh, people always say, you know, you need to wrestle with our questions. I don't really wrestle with my questions. I just have them. And then I say, I don't know. Let me go see what I can find. Mm. And I'm really comfortable now, you know, now that I no longer identify as as Christian, I no longer feel an obligation to come to a succinct conclusion. I feel like, uh, based on my experience and some of the research that I've done, modern American Christianity or modern Western Christianity has the um, tendency to focus on answers and be answer-driven and have some semblance of uh, certainty and truth. Mm-hmm. It's rooted in doctrine, you know, being able to say 
this person is good, this person is bad. These people are going to hell, these people are going to heaven. We see this a lot with certain denominations and demographics that have an idea of a certain number of people going to heaven or you know, predestination. We see these concepts of trying to grasp at certainty. And I think that has come to a head, especially in the last decade or so, where we see young people leaving the church at an increased rate because young people are coming to the realization that asking questions isn't a bad thing. And that mm. that hasn't always been the case in modern culture. I mean, in pop culture, right? In culture and societies over the, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, mm. asking questions and not knowing the answer meant fear, meant uh your voice didn't have authority. Not having an answer yeah, meant you couldn't yeah, be trusted. Yeah. And there was this cultural phenomenon of wanting to know a succinct truth. Well, with the spread of social media and the digital age and people having knowledge at their fingertips with computers on their phones, people have really become comfortable in asking questions and looking for answers and not knowing. And I think that's a big trend we see in young people. And so when the church is wanting to funnel everything down into these singular answers and young people are saying, whoa, 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 that doesn't make any sense to me. I have a lot of questions and you're saying that I can't answer them or I can't ask them or I need to come to a succinct conclusion. Mm -hmm. Those are contradictory. A culture that wants to ask questions and sit in the I don't know versus a culture of we need to know the answer and we have the answer, they're not going to get along well. And so I think that's why we see this tugging apart. And so for me, I was in that camp of I don't know and I'm okay not knowing. You know, I don't know mm -hmm. what happens when we die, and I'm okay with that. I don't feel a sense of fear around that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's an only natural part of the human experience to want to know and have a curiosity about things beyond this life. But I'm under no illusion that I'll ever come to a succinct conclusion while I'm flesh and bone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so for me, I feel more whole. I feel myself. I feel like I have a deeper connection to people that have gone through similar experiences to me or are closer to my age or a mm -hmm. lot of Gen Z, uh, millennials, uh, Gen Zs and millennials, you know, we all kind of are asking these questions and it, it makes me feel, I, I feel, or what I've experienced is that I feel more accessible to people. I, mm. I, I get all of these DMs now on my Instagram, and they're beautiful DMs that I, I try and read as much of them as I can. And they're always to the effect of, you know, Savannah, I, I've experienced religious trauma for years on end, or I've had all these questions and I haven't been able to ask them in my church setting. And your videos have really helped me wrestle with these things in a healthy way, approach these questions um, in an effective way, and have dialogue mm. with my relatives. And I always think now when I see those, I think this is why. I do this and this is who I am because the conversations that I have and the questions that I'm asking now, I wasn't really able to do in a church capacity or a pastoral capacity. And so now that I've stepped away from that label of Christianity and now approach religion from a curious and more academic perspective, it allows me to relate to and connect with people that I think are also having these questions and wanting to sit in the uncertainty. So I think Mm -hmm. You know, not identifying as Christian as Christian now or with Christianity now, I have never felt more at home in my own mind as I do now because mm. I can ask these questions and I'm connecting with people that also have these questions and it feels authentic. 
Whereas before, I felt like I was having to force myself into a mold and say that I believed certain things that deep down I don't think I did. And that was not only unfair to me, but people that I was leading and working with. And so stepping away from it now is more authentic for me um, and, and, and creates more accessible conversations around the things that I think young people are asking. I so appreciate you sharing that. I, uh, many things come up for me. One is like, I perceive it as courage from where I sit, but I think part of it for you is following your path. And, and let me be very clear that I'm sure there was moments that required courage in the face of like loss when you're thinking like well if i don't believe this anymore right what will all these really important people to me think what happens with all of these relationships what happens with all of this education what do i do but i i really love your example of like modeling that integrity to who you are and to right. what you know and what you've come to believe and to say, I won't acquiesce that. That is a beacon of light and love that I think is really important. That's why people respond because they're saying like, well, if she can be honest, then so can I. And I really right. love that. I also feel like something that came up for me when you're sharing about certainty, there's so many, when I said the word certainty, I literally just started thinking about like colonialism and like the ways that like, it's like, it grossed me. I almost like, I just got overwhelmed. I just like see lots <laughs> of like, lots of really harmful things, black bodies, yeah. brown bodies. I'm thinking of all the ways that like control and certainty have yeah. given permission to some of these things. And what came up for me around certainty was that when I think about religious trauma, one of the things that comes up for me is that wherever you feel, wherever one might feel shame, I feel like there is evil, like to me, that is anti-Christ, anti-love, anti-God, anti-truth, anti-the divine. Yeah. So any place that you feel shame, I feel like that's like flag, red flag, like something is right. out of whack and it's not you. It's probably a belief. You may have made a mistake. You are not a mistake who makes mistakes. You, you, you. And honestly, like whatever you did served you in some way, no matter how large or how harmful to you or to others. So I just think that that came up for me, that shame thing. And then it's, it yes. almost felt like anytime, but I had that same feeling around certainty where I was like, anytime you hear someone talking about certainty or like they are certain and they're not, and they don't look like a ghost, just kidding. But if they're certain about like something that they couldn't be certain about, that's probably also a red flag or a, or a yellow flag to say, hey, be cautious here. Right. But I love what you said also about like where we are now, which is like we are, I don't even want to say evolving. It's a word that I have for it where it's like as a society, I think we've come into a space where we can hold a little bit more complexity. And so some people have like practiced certainty for a very long time and they're having a hard time with it. And right. for some of us, we've been practicing curiosity for a long time and and we meet this moment a little differently we've it's almost like we've ushered in this moment and this moment has ushered us in yeah so i think about the curiosity and the ways that we engage this moment so 
And for me, it, it, almost like the baseline of it feels like if it's not wide open and huge and curious and uncertain, how could we call that God or divine? You know, if, right. if we can name that thing fully and we can put it in its box, then like that's clearly not big enough to be God. And that, it, right. <laughs> that, and that makes me think about the way Jesus was rolling around. And even Jesus like grew up, Jesus was given a box. And I would think like, Many rabbis, gurus are given a box and then they come kind of like turn the box and they say, well, I know you heard it said this, but like, this is what that could mean. Right. And, and, I, and so I, I, that comes up for me when you share all that. Yeah. And I think certainty is one of those, it, it's what we're saying is truth, right? What we're saying is when we hear the word certainty, what we're, what we're really saying is what's true? What's the truth? <laughs> and truth is a big word in the Christian community and in the religious, you know, the religious sphere as a whole. Mm. Um, and there are good truths and there are bad truths. And there are truths that are um, not universal. I, I like to use the example of like the housing market across the U.S. Oh, where I, you know, so this is so this is a this is how I like to. Most truths look like this. I have two friends. One friend is from Arkansas, and one friend is from San Francisco. Arkansas. And the Arkansas person bought a six bed, five bath for ninety one thousand dollars. Right? Oh my god! <laughs> you know, right? I'm just making this up. But I the know, Arkansas but... housing market is it's not it's not out of it's not out of the picture. I mean, that could yeah. really happen. Yeah. Um, so if you're from Arkansas. So jealous of you. Like, this is not a dig. I want to be you. Um, and so, that you know, my friend from Arkansas buys a home for 100 grand. Six bed, six bath. Friend from San Francisco buys a home that's a one bed, one bath for 220,000. Right? Maybe so 700. Eat. I mean, depending on where. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So you, have, so you have these two friends of mine. They've both bought a house. One bought one for 100 grand. One bought one for a quarter of a million. To say that homes cost a hundred grand is true. To say that homes in America cost a quarter of a million, also true. Mm. Both are true, but both are expressions of different life experiences based on your setting, culture, and, and where you're at, right? So they're both true. To say that, no. The houses in America are only a quarter of a million dollars. You're leaving out a huge demographic of people in your view of the world. Mm. To say that the housing in America, every house costs a hundred grand, you're leaving out a huge demographic if you're viewing the world through that through that singular lens, right? And so for me, and I, you know, I didn't come up with this. I've learned to view the world like this because of many mentors and people around me, but truth is varied on most instances. There are very few universal truths, and that's a whole philosophical thing that you know I'm sure uh, we could get into on another day of what is a universal truth, but truth and the truth and certainty is actually very varied, and viewing it singularly as one answer, one perspective, actually leaves out a lot of people, and it's one of the most exclusive ways to view the world. And so I like to ask the question when people say, you know, for certainty, like, this is a truth, this is a truth. I say, is anyone left out by that truth? Who's left out <sighs> by that truth? Come on now. Come on, Savannah. And if the, if the answer is no one, then it's an okay truth to have. A, a, an example might be, you know, I believe that, that 
Jesus loves everyone. That's a truth. No one, no one's hurt by that truth, right? That's not leaving out anybody. Mm. But if you say, gay people go to hell, and that's a truth. Mm. Okay, many people are hurt by that truth. <laughs> so so wow. let's look at that truth again and say, how were you brought up? What stories were you told? What theologies were you told? And is that truth of yours the result of the culture around you? And can you broaden your lens to open it up to other truths that are more inclusive. So my my question I always ask people when they when they claim to know something with certainty, I say, who is left out in that truth? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is one person, that's too many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's and I use that example of the housing market because it shows it's something we all relate to. We've all experienced the diversity of the housing market and can hold all of those truths. So. That's how I approach truth and try to encourage. You know, I work with a lot of young people. I was a, pa- a college and young adult pastor for a while, and that's how we kind of approached truths is saying, who's left out in this? And what are some other areas where that truth might look different? And can you hold space for all of those, just like we hold space for varying costs of housing? Mm. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that, <laughs> Savannah, that is an extraordinary example. I think it makes it really clear. I love the way that it honors experience yeah and the way that what feels also challenging to me is that like there are people who have experienced really harmful beliefs as truth and they will feel that their experience is is being and i don't even want to say this out loud but it's like you're invalidating my experience by by superimposing a wider truth or a broader perspective or a truer truth. See episode about the mistranslation of homosexual in 1946 <laughs> or uh, another episode with Ed Oxford. So, um, yeah, but I think there, there, we don't honor experience enough because you can't tell somebody else their truth. Right. And you can't superimpose your experience on somebody else's truth. But what you said really made me think, and our conversation around theology and and openness and the ways that we kind of like the perspective or the lens that we put on when we walk into the conversation, it makes me think of uh, this moment in Acts where we have the man, the myth, the legend. I don't even. I don't even want to see. I don't even. Know. I don't know if that's how I want to describe the brother. <laughs> Um, it's funny. There's so, there's you want to talk about religious trauma, Senor Saint Paul. Uh, but here we are. We're in Acts, and there's this moment where I just think that it. What I love about this moment is that Paul is using language and experience of the space to try to engage and to tell his experience of God and his journey. And so I'm going to read this passage, and then we'll kind of respond to it. Okay. So, uh, here in Acts 17, verse 22, it says, So Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Uh, That was not the way we wanted to open that up, Savannah. Perfect. Uh, Nailed uh, it. Line? uh, Line? Oh, I was staring at it? Okay, sorry. Uh, Okay, cut. And and Scene. Take two. Got it. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, people of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, 
I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by humans, nor are they served by human hands as though they need anything, since God gives to all humankind life and breath and everything. And God made from one person every nation of humankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards God and find God. Yet God is actually not far from each one of us. For in God we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed God's offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of humans. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which God will judge the world in righteousness by a person whom they have appointed. And of this, God has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of the people mocked him, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some people joined him and believed. I'll stop there. We read a lot. Savannah, what comes up to you? What stands out most to you from all of that? <laughs> oh, Paul. Mm. Um, I have a an interesting relationship with Paul, but when I hear that, when I hear that passage, what I hear is humanity desperately seeking answers and in, in such earnest and passionate ways, Paul is reaching out to a community that has been expressing and, um, practicing religion in their own way. And it says, you know, you have you have these markings, these unmarked idols. You know, you don't know who this God is. Well, I do. And to me, it's one of those rare examples in the Bible where we almost see some sort of uh, religious intermingling, uh, this interreligious kind of mashup, where Paul is saying, he, it's very interesting. He doesn't necessarily denounce what they're doing. He's saying, you have questions about who this God is that you're worshiping. All of your idols are unmarked. There's no names. You know, you've been fumbling, which I think is such a great word to describe human humanity's desperate attempt to understand what the heck is going on most of the time. You know, we're fumbling around for answers. And Paul says, well, I have an answer. It's, it's, it's Yahweh. It's Jesus. And so I think it's this, it's this interesting dynamic going on. Uh, between someone who has discovered something that is very close to him and has affected his life and wanting to bring that over to another community. Of course, I'm also looking at it through the lens of, a, of an academic person. I'm looking at it through an academic lens and saying, okay, this book was written by Luke, but he's, he's quoting Paul. So there's already some glorified version of telephone going mm -hmm. on here. It's Luke quoting Paul, who's mm -hmm. quoting, it, it, 
Luke saying something Paul said to someone else at a different time. So there's probably, you know, 40, 50 years, maybe 100 years in between all of this. Mm. And so there's that going on. There's Paul, who never met Jesus, who is sometimes speaks as if he did. Um, and, you know, I'm always like, who's going to tell him? Like, I don't want to tell him. Like, who's <laughs> going to tell him that he's never actually met him? And that's not to dilute anything that, that Paul's saying here. It's just to give perspective of the, the beauty that I see in this passage is someone has experienced something spiritually beautiful, wanting to share it with someone else. Mm. The, the danger I see in this passage is someone experiencing something beautiful and saying that someone else's experience is not as valuable and is invalid and inauthoritative in their space because it doesn't match his. You can read both of those things into that, right? That's that. That's that kind of varied truth. The housing is a thousand, uh, is is a hundred thousand or a quarter of a million, right? Those are two truths going on there. Because I believe that what Paul experienced spiritually was beautiful and offered a lot to him, but he also changed a lot of the language surrounding Jesus. Um, that then Peter calls into question and says, "Hey, Paul." Um, no one else says that. That's just you, right? You, mm. Paul has some universal truths that he claims that we don't see Jesus talking about that he kind of takes up for himself yep. because he was a product of his culture and his society. Paul grew up in a post-Babylonian captive culture where we've got Mesopotamian, Egyptian, Babylonian uh, influences on his culture. We've got you know Aristotle, Plato, all of those things, all of these philosophies that are that are I hope I've got my chronological order there going on right but I think that's right um, all of these influences on Paul he so he so Paul hears the story of Jesus takes it into his his soul carries it alongside influences from Mesopotamia Babylon Egypt um, you know the Israelites culture all of that is together. And so then what he spits out to, I wish I shouldn't say spits out, that's derogatory. What he presents to people in his letters, in the epistles, or in Acts here, is not exactly a mirror image of what Jesus said to him, because, I mean, what he heard about Jesus. Mm. So what Paul hears about Jesus is then presented with influences from all of these other countries and empires. And so I always approach the words of Paul with a reminder of that, of what Paul is saying here is he's basically just so excited and passionate about what he's heard about Jesus that when he presents it to other people, it can come off a little bit, um, you know, as millennials say, a little aggro, right? A little aggressive. (laughs) He can come off a little strong or a little bit like he's invalidating those that don't mirror him. But but, but still, there is some goodness. There is some goodness in that. And it's a man whose life has been changed simply by hearing the story of another man. And just think about that. I mean, this is a man who used to persecute people who follow Jesus, Right, and then had a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, and, w- and this kind of vision, and was so moved by it, or was so moved by hearing the autobiography of someone else, the biography of someone else, that he changes the course of his life. Like that's insane, and so that's also a, some goodness there. I mean, that you know, Paul says some questionable things every now and then that are a bit contradictory, and. I, you know, I talk about those on my Instagram all the time. I'm no short for material there, but I don't want to discount the goodness that that this story represents. 
what does it tell us about the story of of who Jesus is, regardless of where you sit religiously? If you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you're a Muslim, if you're Jewish, what, whatever it is, the the goodness that can come out of this is what does it tell you about this this figure, this historical figure named Jesus, that all these other people packed up their lives and changed their way of life after reading about him. That's really telling about how powerful of a person and how good of a person Jesus was. And so whenever I read stories in the New Testament written by Paul or spoken by Paul, I try and pivot it back to not what is Paul saying specifically, what is it telling you about the story of Jesus that now has Paul acting this way? And that might not be the answer you were looking for, but when I read this passage in Acts or any words by Paul, I think, okay, yeah, sure, this kind of contradicts what he said two chapters ago, and maybe we're a little bit confused and we're figuring some stuff out, but what's the goodness here? Is there anything I can get from this that's good? Sure. It's that when you see someone's life is so good and someone is such a good person and Mm. emulates love and compassion so well that it forces you to change who you are, how does that influence you as a person? It makes you want... It makes you want to be that type of person. You want to be compassionate and loving and so encompassing of love and empathy and inclusion that you encourage other people to do the same. Mm. So that's how I look at that passage and and most passages written by Paul. <laughs> Savannah, that is really, really good. I'm trying to hold that. Uh, because I, I think that that's really important. And I really, the way that I perceive Paul was always like, not the, the the aggressive thing, but like the um uh I don't even know that the I can't think of the technical term for it, but where you just feel like you have so much to prove, where you're so kind of guilt ridden or you're just like, I've done so much wrong yeah. for so long that now I need mm-hmm. to do so much right. And it feels right. like this hyper you know, the pendulum in his life has swung and now he's trying to be yeah. like, Man, I was ultra this and now I gotta be ultra that which is like maybe that's the personality type where you're just like I, I right. go hard for everything. I went hard over here, and now I go hard over here. But I think, I think there's an uh, for me. There's what I perceive is like what I think, and how I kind of hear it is like, oh, you're overcompensating over here now. Right. Like there's a level in you where you haven't experienced enough healing or uh, transformation within yourself. But you're constantly reminding yourself, man, I, I'm trying to renew my mind, but I keep like That's such a good point. All I can hear is the voices of people who have been, I mean, I, I don't want to be gross or like people who have been thrown into the Colosseum or people who I've yeah. had stoned or and have listened to them cry out for their mothers and their partners yeah. and their children. So I just think that like for me, when I hear him, a lot of times I'm thinking about that. But what you made me think is, well, one of the things that came up for me while you're sharing, there's two things. While I was reading, all I could think about was like, wow, certainty. Like we spend so much time talking about this idea of like certainty and truth. And Paul is just like, excuse me, everyone, give me your attention. I have something to say about that small <laughs> statue right there. I've been talking to everybody I can and nobody wants to listen to me. So now I have your attention. That little statue there, let me tell you a story. Right. Um, And he's, but he's, and I, like you said, like there's so much courage in that moment. Right. Um, I don't know what's at stake for him to walk into that space and to start saying that. I don't know if he has, you know, this kind of revered position where it's like people are going to listen or is this that space where philosophers are just 
philosophizing you know is is this twitter i don't know or yeah. they just yeah. say what they want to say and people kind of latch on as it works i don't know but i do see that sense of like that certainty that 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 uh it's almost like buzz light your certainty for voice. early young yes. buzz light before the 40 millennium trips around the, the world and all that. yeah yeah but, it's desperate desperate for answers yes wow isn't that for interesting sure. too that that mm-hmm. it's the overcompensating when i'm desperate yep. for answers the more desperate i am for answers the more passionate my certainty because i'm trying to counterbalance yep. and it's almost like yes and i can just see pastors even nowadays where it's like if you have that internal angst i don't want to angst isn't the right word but if there's that desperate for like i don't know how this works or fits together then i combat that with this voice that is overly certain right and and again like the benefit of the doubt is like oh i see you you're you're coping with your reality you're figuring it out too it doesn't sound like that you sound you got it all figured out but so certainty really came up for me but I, i really love the way that you extended that grace and the benefit of the doubt and to pull it back. And I think we don't do that enough where we're like, wow, this person's life was changed. And a lot of us, you know, it's almost like, and I think nowadays we keep mentioning like millennial and all this stuff. Like I live in Los Angeles and it's like, you know, when somebody quits their job to be an entrepreneur, we're all like, yeah, you know, like we get like really riled up for that. But like back then, it's like you left your parents. What? Like that's yeah. your great granddad's fishing industry monopoly. Right, longevity was admired. Yeah, yeah and you just walked <laughs> just away from all that. Same. So, yep, all that comes up for me. I does anything else come up for you around the scripture? I don't know. I would. I'd have to sit again. I told you I love saying I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. It. it for me, I approach the Bible so differently than I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I approach it like a, a historical artifact. And I mean, it is, but I'll, but I don't I don't approach it with the same sacredness that I used to. And so what I what I get from passages is very different from, probably most of the other guests that you've had on here. And that's fine. That's awesome. Um, But I don't get a spiritual revelation or a motivation or some sort of emotion out of it. I am, I don't know if this is right brain or left brain. I'm like the very analytical kind of person. And my husband is an Enneagram four, a romantic. So like everything has meaning and let's, let's take the scenic route. And I'm very much like, let's take the quickest route and let's be effective. And so, and which is great. We make a great pair and we never fight ever. Oh. Um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, never I leads know. to any conflict in our works. marriage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but, so when I approach scripture, um, I have a, a deep respect for, but not necessarily a reference for, scripture in the Bible. And what I always look for is what was going on. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm teaching on this on Sunday, so it's, it's fresh in my mind, but I'm doing a lesson on biblical genres. And so I always look at what's the genre of this book? What's the historical context of this book? And then what's something, what's an appropriate life application I can get from this, right? So genre of acts, uh, you know, it's technically a narrative slash letter, 
So there's a story being told. It's kind of like a historical narrative genre. Uh, so there's a story being told, and in that story there are some facts. So it's like a textbook, but it's made into a movie. Um, so there are some facts, but it's packaged into a story. Okay, and then what was going on historically in the book of Acts? All right, well, a lot of the early Christians have been dispersed throughout because of persecution. Uh, we're coming off of hundreds of years of the Babylonian captivity. We're coming off of a lot of cultural influences. I think Caesar uh, yeah. or Alexander the Great was in charge, <laughs> in charge, <laughs> ruling, yeah. was in charge. You know, So we're coming off of a lot of um, contextual... Um, uncomfortable riffraff and and, and con um, conflict. How's that going to play in? What are the pressures? And so I'm I'm reading it through that lens, and then I'm saying, what is the life application here? Okay, if I take it literally, the life application is I need to go look for anyone who doesn't align with me religiously, and then tell them about my belief and how it's the bee's knees. Okay, well that's not a good life application. That's a literal application that would not end well. So okay, what's a broader life application? Okay. What is Paul doing here? He's really excited about something he's experienced. He's sharing it with someone else. Um, he's allowed his life to be positively changed by someone who had a good influence on him. Okay, who's a positive influence on my life, and how can I better let them influence my being? And what's something I've experienced spiritually that's been good for me, and how can I share that with people in an appropriate and inclusive way? Mm. That's the life application I take from it. I often use the example of 2 Timothy 2.12, where Paul is saying, you know, women shouldn't speak in church. And I think, okay, well, it's an epistle. That's the genre. What's going on contextually? All right, at the time, women couldn't read, write, own property, have access to scripture, or sit in the front of a worship setting. So, of course, they shouldn't have spoken in church because they would have been terrible teachers because they couldn't read or write. <laughs> they were, it would have been terrible. Don't let a woman preach in that time and place. They would not have been good. Okay, does that work as a direct application now? No, because I can read and write and get an education, and I can sit wherever Much I want. Much better in a than many setting. I've heard, by the way. <laughs> so, so the light, so the so the literal application doesn't work mm -hmm. well anymore. That doesn't. That's not an accurate interpretation. Well, what's a broader life application I can take from that passage? Okay, maybe it's that no one should lead or speak up in a public setting if they don't have the proper education and qualifications, and that would ring true for any leader. So that's how I approach scripture is what's the history and context? What's the literal appropriate uh, interpretation? And does that literal interpretation ring true today? And if not, let go of the literalism and look at the overarching message. And how can you apply that today? Rarely is a literal interpretation the accurate way to interpret ancient texts. Rarely will it work. It hardly ever works. I mean, God forbid we take eye for an eye to mean literally. Can you imagine? You know, so looking at the overarching message and saying, how can I apply this to my life in a positive way is how I approach it. Savannah, I love that. What I because what I heard was this is why I another reason why I think you're resonating with people is because you aren't the over-romanticized, like your expectation is aligned with the expectation of folks. So you're not looking yeah. for this certainty. You're not looking for answers here. You respect that this is an ancient text, that it's diverse, that it's ancient, that there's a lot of ambiguity in there, but where a lot of people don't respect that or honor that or treat it as such. And so what I love is that while there's like, so many people out there who are like really emotional and then because i'm thinking of like the context people are hearing it in and so like right many times like 
who gets elected as the charismatic whatever, they stand up at the front. They're like, you know, super woo-woo emotional. It's like, oh my God. Right. If you would just, if you just, just close, just, just, just. And all of like the Savannahs in the room are like, yo, you say one just. It's not working bro, and for me. move it on. <laughs> yeah, like this isn't connect with me. Like this isn't the same. Right. But I love that. Again, it's, it's you're embodying that, how you hold the space and that maturity to me that says like, I see it different. And you acknowledge that my partner sees it this way and like might experience experiences life through the lenses that he has. But I experience life through these lenses. And, and but I love that you not only like, I just love that you have, I wanted to say platform, but I love that you have been so honest and mm. generous with who you are and the plot, like you create like you didn't create it only but people were just saying like more of you more of that like more of that more more respect more like hospitality more kindness more broadness more curiosity i i just love that and i I, to me like what what you're sharing just click like of course like that of course like we need more of this like we have a lot of that out there (laughs) we need more of this out here (laughs) <laughs> so Savannah, I'm so that. grateful that you have spent so much time with us and be so generous with your story and how you are in the world. Would you let us know how we can get connected to you and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can connect with me. I'm on Instagram, Savannah Ray Carreno. Uh, you can also find me uh, at Please Elaborate. Please Elaborate is uh, we provide resources for young people to have these hard conversations. We have a book called How to Talk to People. Um, we also are a diversity, equity, and inclusion and communications consulting agency. So we work with small businesses, schools, and universities to help people have conversations around hard topics, leadership communication, but we also do DEI training as well. Um, so I'm over there as well. I'd love to hear from you. And can I just say, I think I said this when we were uh, not recording, but I love all the guests that you've had. I think you've had, you've had Angela Lee. Do you have John Williams as well? We have had John Williams. And as then well. you had um, Mark Chase, who I just call Chase, yes. um, who I said was literally one of the best bosses that I've ever had. So Chase, if you're listening, love you, bro. Hope you're doing well. You and your 37 children. Um <laughs> Yeah, you've just had incredible people on that I have known. And even though I, you know, I don't work in that space anymore, I watch what those people are doing. And the uh, I don't know if I can name like churches or organizations on here. Can I do that? Is that you can is that do kosher? whatever if it's positive? you can do whatever you want to do. I uh, will yeah. sit over here. Just so <laughs> well, I just want to say I just want to say that I used to work at a church called Fellowship Monrovia, and I had a wonderful experience there. I know no church is perfect, and you know, it, I'm not saying that they're perfect, uh, but it was truly the the staff and the people that I met uh, that poured into me and that I got to witness in leadership capacities, uh, some of the best, and they truly inspired me and um, were the ones that basically said, Hey, it's okay to talk about these things. I was really stu- I was studying at the time religion and culture and looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in religious settings. And so, working there simultaneously, um, I was encouraged to continue there. You know that that desire is a desire of fellowships, and and they they uplift and create an environment of diverse, equitable, and inclusive people constantly. And um, yeah, it's just really important to me. And I just wanted to, I know that they're probably never going to hear this, but whenever I talk about the church or any bad experiences, 
I'm not talking about them and, and they've just had a, they're just an incredible church. And if you are a person of faith, I would definitely encourage you to attend um, some of their services. I love what they're doing. Thank you, Savannah. Um, I'm trying to like summarize all of this. And I just think about hospitality and an awareness of how affected we are by our own experiences, the lenses that we have and the ways that we can build respect and honor and hold space. Like really is just acknowledging that not everyone has those same experiences. So if we can just hold that in not tension, but if we can hold that, I think that's where we're going to, like, we're going to be great. I think that's what I'm kind of like the, yeah. the heart of the conversation. How do we hold space for one another? Getting back to that space that you're really passionate about creating dialogue instead of debate. Savannah, I'm so yes. grateful for you. I think we're all better humans having listened to you for a while. And uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> grateful for all your content. Thanks for your time, my sister. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, all y'all, we're so grateful for you. And like the ways that Savannah just lit up your earbuds. We believe all of us are lighting up the world in that way. And so we just, I just believe you are headed into your space, you're finishing up your dishes, you're finishing up your run, you're finishing up your drive to work, and you're ready to hold space for others and be like this beacon of hospitality and warmth and an ability to like hold space and dialogue instead of debate. So much love, y'all. We'll talk to you next week. Peace. Get up every